Thankfully, my daughter takes after her mom, and uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. Now, she's great. My son just turned 16. She'll be 14 here in a few, uh, few months, so pray for us. Um, those of you that have teenagers know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, my son has been introduced to the world of girlfriends for the first time, and I'm not sure how I feel about all that, so there's a lot to be praying about, and uh, I'm just so thankful to get to be here with you tonight. I uh, appreciate so much the invitation. There's a lot of connections uh, in this church to Decatur, uh, a lot more connections maybe to Grant Street than to Beltline, but uh, it, is, it is always good to see uh, the family of God uh, wherever it might be, just connections everywhere. And we're going to talk about truth tonight. Uh, the title of the lesson, if you wanted to name it, would be What is Truth? And I want to start with an illustration uh, of a man who was pulled over for speeding. So he gets pulled over for speeding and the officer comes to the window and he asks for the man's driver's license and registration like normally happens. If you've ever been pulled over, you probably know about that well. And the man says to the police, police officer, I don't have a license because it's been revoked for all my DWIs and I don't know about registration because I stole the car. I think I saw one in the glove box when I put my gun in there. Well, this obviously got uh, the officer's attention. He said, you've got a gun in there? He said, well, yeah, what else am I going to use to rob a bank? And at this point, the, the officer takes out his own gun, pulls it out, and says to this guy, all right, you're just going to have to wait right here. And he goes and calls the sheriff, and backup arrives. And when the sheriff gets there, he begins to interrogate this man and asks him, okay, sir, do you have any form of valid identification whatsoever? At that point, the man reaches into his wallet and he pulls out a valid driver's license. And the sheriff is a bit perplexed and, and he says, well, I thought you didn't have a license or a registration. No, the guy reaches into the glove box and hands him a valid registration as well. The sheriff is now really confused and says, wait a minute. My guy says, you don't have a license or a registration. You robbed a bank. The gun is in the glove box and the money's in the trunk. The man replied, yeah, and I bet he told you I was speeding too, didn't he? And the moral of the story, if there is such one, is that oftentimes we assume something to be true just because somebody said it and somebody else said it and then somebody else said it. And, and the reality is they're not true at all. And I am a big believer that every one of us sitting in this place tonight share a common enemy and he is called in John 8, the father of lies. And deceit is his main weapon. And I'm convinced that beneath a lot of the problems that we experience in our life is a lie that he has sold us that we have bought. And we cannot begin to fix the problems that we have in our lives until we first uh, get rid of the lie that those problems are built on. Let me give you an example. You, you, you can go to five clinics to dry out from alcohol abuse, but if you believe that you are a loser and no good, my guess is you're going to continue to struggle with alcoholism. Until that lie is removed, that's still going to be your issue. And, and if a young girl believes that she is dirty or unlovable because of, of some sexual molestation or some problem that she's had in her life, you can give her a hundred books on purity and making pure choices, but she's going to have a hard time doing that until first that lie that she is dirty and unlovable is erased first. We are surrounded in our society and in our culture by myths that make us miserable. 
And that's why the scriptures on a regular and consistent basis speak to the necessity of the people of God. That's us renewing our minds, right? Don't be conformed to the world, Paul would say in Romans 12, but instead be transformed. Well, how do we do that? By renewing our minds. If you've read the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And what Paul is really praying is that we would be able to grow and be spiritually discerning. That you and I would learn how to think like Christians. To be able to say, yes, I understand that's what everybody else is saying. But here is what the scripture says. Here's what God says. And that is the truth. That's what Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was. And I believe it's God's prayer for us today. I want to share with you some truths. I like this a little bit. I'm I'm a sucker for a good... Illustration. So truths we never would have known had it not been for the movies. Okay? Truths we never would have known had it not been for the movies. Number one, it's always possible to park outside the building you are visiting, directly outside. Every wouldn't have known that had it not been for the movies. And number two, a detective can only solve a case once he has been suspended from duty. I would never have known that had it not been for the movies. If you decide to start dancing in the street, number three, everyone you bump into will know all the steps. And I wouldn't have known that had it not been for the movies. Most laptop computers are powerful enough to override the communication systems of an invading alien civilization. Wouldn't have known that had it not been for the movies. And maybe my favorite one, it does not matter if you are outnumbered in a fight involving martial arts. Your enemies will wait patiently to attack you one by one by dancing around in a threatening manner until you have knocked out their predecessor. I wouldn't have known that had it not been for the movies. When they are alone, foreigners prefer to speak English. Wouldn't have known that either. And I could go on, but let me give you one more. An electric fence powerful enough to kill a dinosaur will leave no lasting damage to an eight-year-old child. Wouldn't have known that. If it hadn't been for the movies. And that's just really a sarcastic way of saying that that movies get to get away with kind of creating their own reality, right? And the problem is the world we live in, many people think that they get to do the same thing. That they get to create their own reality. If you have your Bibles, let's go together to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Jesus is about to be crucified for the sins of the world. He's about to give his life freely and willingly for us. He's about to endure the the, the harshest punishment that you could possibly fathom. And he has this interaction with Pilate in John chapter 18. Look at verse 36 with me. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say right. You, so you, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? I really wish I knew how Pilate asked that question. Was it flippant? Eh, what is truth? Was he a serious seeker? What is truth? I wish I knew the uh, the body language behind the question that, that Pilate asks. What is truth? The problem is, and the bottom line is, people are not asking that question today. Instead, we live in a in an age where people are constantly trying to redefine truth. 
And you're just as guilty of it probably as much as I am. And let me give you one of the, one of the easy examples of how you and I try to redefine truth. You heard that I lived in Southern California for seven years. I lived in Mission Viejo, California, which is right there in the heart of Interstate 5. We just call it the 5 out there because it's just that bad of an interstate. And it, 10 miles down the road, merges with the 405. You want to talk about traffic. You think Birmingham is bad. Goodness gracious. I was going 74 miles to Malibu. It took me three and a half hours. That's, that's what gets people crazy out there. But anyway, you didn't need to know any of that. I just wanted to connect with you and relate with you a little bit there. Uh, but but so, so let's, let's just, here's the last time that you wanted to redefine truth is when you were pulled over for speeding. What are some of the typical responses that happen when we're pulled over for speeding? Well, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was 55. I was going 80. <laughs> or, or my favorite one that I don't think is used as much out here, but certainly is used when you're living near Interstate 5 and 405. Officer, I was just keeping up with the flow of traffic, right? So everybody's going 130, and I just, I didn't want to be in the way, so I just, that's why you shouldn't give me a ticket, right? But either one of those excuses, does any one of those excuses change the fact that you were speeding? No. But we want to redefine truth. The question for us to ask ourselves is this. Can truth be altered by the situation? Can truth be altered by the individual? And most people today would probably say yes because the majority of Americans have come to believe that, tr that truth is relative. But what if what the majority of Americans think about truth isn't true? Our society, especially the emerging generation, no longer affirms the notion of absolute truth. And here's what's happening today in our world. Our culture has sown a new understanding and value on the virtue of tolerance. And tolerance has replaced truth as the highest virtue in our society. And what that means is there is not a child today who can go to public school in America and not be told how important it is to practice tolerance. And tolerance is important. But what you and I need to understand is that the definition of tolerance today is far different from the definition of tolerance when you grew up. Traditional tolerance meant something like this. Love the sinner, not the sin. We can get behind that, right? Embrace all people, but not all beliefs. I care about you even though I think what you are doing is wrong. That's traditional tolerance. That's a tolerance we can get behind because it's founded on the truths of Scripture, right? And it's grounded in the teachings of Jesus Christ. But tolerance today is completely different. It's a new tolerance. Today, tolerance today means all individual beliefs, values, lifestyles, and truth claims are equal in value. That is the lie that we are being sold today in this country. And so here's the difference. The old tolerance said it's a free country. And although I think what you practice and believe is wrong, you have a right to practice it. The new tolerance comes along and says you are a bigot if you don't say or if I don't say to you that what you believe and practice is just as legitimate as what I believe and practice. Today you are a bigot if you believe in a hierarchy. If you believe that there is a lifestyle or a truth claim that is better than another. You see, a dramatic shift has happened 
in our country, and especially in our schools over the last 30 years. Many of you have probably heard of the author Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You've probably got that book in your library if you, if you read stuff like that. Well, 30 years ago, Josh McDowell said the most quoted and well-known Bible verse on college campuses, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 30 years later, the most quoted verse on college campus, you want to take a guess, a shot in the dark? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. Truth has become a matter of taste. You know, every generation has a word, I think, that kind of defines it. And it's kind of been that way for a while, right? I wasn't raised in the 60s, that was before my time. I'm, I'm a child of the 70s, was born in 75. That can tell you how old I am, 44, not, not ashamed to say that. Uh, but, but every word, every generation has a word. Back in the 60s, help me out here, groovy, right? I mean, that was one of those great words in the 60s that kind of defined a generation. As the 70s roll in, we get the word cool, all right? And cool is one of those words that's kind of stood the test of time. Uh, it's still not too unhip to use that word today, that word cool. After cool came the word awesome, right? Oh, that's awesome. And we would say, God is awesome. And we'd say, oh, that pizza is awesome, right? And so that word in the 80s was kind of big. And then one of my favorites, dude. That came in the 90s. That, that's kind of, that's, I'm a child of that as well. I mean, that's, I was in high school in the 90s, went to college in the 90s. And the thing about dude was, I mean, you, you, you didn't, it was the same word. And it just, it just find everything. If you're sad, dude. If you're happy, dude, right? It didn't matter, but that word kind of defined everything. Well, there is a word for this generation, and it even had a hand motion with it many moons ago. It's a word that's been around for a little bit now. It's the word whatever. And sadly, that word is a commentary on this generation's understanding of truth. I think we are reaping the results of 20 plus years of teaching that truth is irrelevant and that sincerity is more important than truth. Because when you think about it, there are really only two ways that you and I can look at truth. Number one, truth is defined by God. It is objective. It is absolute. <coughs> Excuse me. Truth is defined by God. It is objective and it is absolute. That's the first way. The second way to look at truth is to say truth is defined by the individual. Therefore, it is subjective and it is situational. And in that way of thinking, right and wrong are replaced by opinions. You've heard this said before. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Have you heard that before? That is absolute crock. That's nonsense. It is not God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's God said it, that settles it. It really doesn't matter if I believe it or not. It does matter, but it doesn't matter in that way. It's crazy the things that we say. My belief does not change the fact that God's truth is settled. But in this age, it, is, it appears it's more important to be politically correct than it is to be correct. McDowell, again, said, if I would have walked onto a college campus and said, Jesus is risen from the dead, 20 years ago, they would have said, prove it. Give me the evidence. Today, they don't say prove it. When he walks onto those same college campuses 20 plus years later, they say, what gives you the right to say that? 
What gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to think that your truth should be everyone's truth? It's a big difference, isn't it? And this really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and the Garden of Eden where Satan comes along and convinces Eve, hey, you can be your own God. You can determine what is right and wrong. You can determine what is good and what is evil. He sold that lie then. It worked. It continues to work today. Proverbs 14 verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but that way is the way of death. And let me ask you this, if there is no moral standard, if truth is subjective and situational, then can, we, then can we say anything is right or anything is wrong? Several years ago, you had two men plant bombs on the side of the Boston Marathon as it was finishing up. We're about to celebrate, what is it, 18 years now? Since 2000. Uh, since September 11th, where 19 very sincere men flew airplanes into buildings. Those men believed in what they were doing. And who are we to say what they did was wrong if truth is discovered in each individual heart? Do you see the danger of this way of thinking? So here's the question that the postmodern generation is asking. Why do we think Christianity is the only right religion? This is the question our kids are asking. Why do you think Christianity is the only right religion? Since we all worship the same God, why does it matter if someone's not a Christian? You see, the debate today has changed. The debate today is different. Our kids don't mind being Christians. But do they think everyone should be a Christian? Whatever. Whatever. Think of the implications of a generation that believes that way. I don't have all the answers, not even close. But maybe it's time for us to dust off some of those old lessons that kind of explain why we're Christians and why we do what we do in the first place. Maybe it's time to dust some of those off again and bring those back and say... Let's understand who we are and why we do what we do. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, you know this verse. You can turn there if you'd like. Jesus utters the most politically incorrect words that ever came out of his mouth. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes, no one comes to the Father except through me. The most politically incorrect words Jesus ever uttered. Why? Because we live in a culture that says, no, 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 Jesus, you can't say that. All roads lead to heaven. All roads. It's not just you. It's not just, no. All and our culture today is not anti-religion as much as it is anti-any religion that claims to be better than another one. That is what our culture is against. Now, the Bible says to us that there was a time when man had unhindered access into the presence of God. But we sinned. We fell. We lost that access. And so all religion then should be trying to answer the question, how do we, how do we get that access back to God again? And the popular notion of the day is there are 
many roads, there are many paths, and not one religion has a corner on access to God. In short, sincerity saves. But if sincerity saves in the realm of religion, that is the only realm that I know of where that is true. Think about it this way. I've been sick for three weeks. I'm finally starting to feel better, finally getting over uh, this. I think I had two sinus infections. I went to Camp Maywood and got mold all up. over. It was, I just know Maywood had something to do with it. So anyway, I've been sick. I, I got a shot last week just to get through because I was preaching in Plainview uh, last week. I had to get that shot. Ooh, it wired me up, man. I felt really, really good. I, was, I couldn't sleep. I was up till four in the morning. But let's just say you're sick like I was and you go to the doctor. And the doctor takes one look at you and says, yep, you're sick. And then he says, look over there, there's a medicine cabinet. Why don't you just go ahead and go pick something? Just, just pick something out. Because, I mean, all the medicines are designed to make you better, so it really doesn't matter. Just go, just go pick one. Believe and be well. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm not going back to that doctor. I, I'm just not going to do it. Because sincerity is not enough. What you think is the right road might actually be a road that leads to death. Now, we live in a country where all religions are equally protected. And I wouldn't have it any other way. But that does not mean that all religions are equally true. And if John 14, 6 is true, and it is, then that means that all roads do not lead to heaven, and Christianity cannot be reconciled with any other religion. And it is that claim that so offends people today. It is that claim that drives people crazy. Let me, let me back you up in history for just a little bit. George W. Bush was taking the presidency. He invites two men to pray in his inaugural ceremony, Kirby John Williams and a guy named Franklin Graham. You know his father, Billy. And here's how Franklin Graham closed his prayer on that inauguration day when George W. Bush was to be sworn in as the President of the United States. He closed his prayer with, in the name of the Father, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And after, it was like instantly after he finished that, the flurry began. Alan Dershowitz, deeply committed Jew, wrote this. The very first act of the Bush administration was to have a Protestant evangelical minister officially dedicate the inauguration to Jesus Christ, whom he declared to be our Savior. This man who Bush selected to bless his presidency excluded tens of millions of Americans who are Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Shintus, atheists, agnostics, and Unitarians from his blessing by this particular language. Let me stop for just a second and say, how do you pray and not offend an atheist? He goes on to say, it is permissible to reject any particular theology. Indeed, that is part of our glorious diversity. What is not acceptable is for a presidential inauguration to exclude millions of its citizens from its opening ceremony by dedicating it to a particular religious savior. And he concluded, if Bush wants all Americans to accept him as his president, their president, he just made a big mistake. I don't think you need to anticipate any persecution in the near future for being a Christian. But what you will hear is this. Don't you hold up your faith as something everybody ought to believe. You want to believe it? That's fine. But don't you hold it up as something that everybody ought to believe. But can a faith truly be Christian? 
if it does not affirm what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's not just Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Paul, Peter, as he's preaching his second or third sermon there, he says, remember what it says? There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. Paul, as he's writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy says in chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then look at this one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what John says. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, the New Testament authors said, you better follow Jesus if you want to know you're on the right road. Why? Because there are some things. There are some things about our faith that make it absolutely impossible to be reconciled with other faiths. And I want to share those with you. Introduction over. That was a long introduction. Believe me, second half won't be this long. Three things, three unique qualities about our faith that make it absolutely impossible to be reconciled with anything else. Here's number one, and that is the identity of our founder. The identity of our founder. You see, the great claim of Christ is a claim that nobody else has ever made. Jesus claimed that he was God in the flesh. Now, all other religions that are out there are man's attempt to reach out to God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach out to man. At least 50 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God, twice by God himself. He claimed to have an identity that was absolutely unique. C.S. Lewis said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You need to make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The identity of our founder is completely separates Christianity from everything else. In Matthew 16, as they're in, in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, when, they're, when they're, they're walking around, remember what happens? Jesus begins to ask, hey, what are people saying about me? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, oh, wonderful Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it right. And on that confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's the point. You cannot be a Christian and be unsure about the identity of Jesus. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example. He is Lord and he is God. In Acts chapter 8, you have Philip and the eunuch, and there they are well, it's talking about a scripture, right, from Isaiah. And as they're going down the road, there's water, and the eunuch says, hey, what's keeping me from being baptized? What does the eunuch, what does Philip say? If you believe, believe what? Who Jesus is, you may. 
In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, right after Paul has this, this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's, he's blind for three days and immediately, this text says, at once he began to teach something. What was it? Jesus as the Son of God. All the prophecies prove he is who he says he is and his resurrection from the dead seals the deal. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says, man, God declared who he was and gave, gave, gave approval to who he was by raising him from the dead. In the Kremlin, anybody been to the Kremlin before? Any, anybody? I don't know if this is true, and I would love if this is true for you to tell me. I don't know if it's just a preacher story or what, but I'm going to say it's true until I've been told different. But in the Kremlin... What I've been told is there is the preserved body of Vladimir Lenin, the father of communism. Is that true? And now we know Lenin died in 1924. But each day a long line of people parade by to see his remains. And if you were to be in the Kremlin and see his tomb, there is an inscription next to his body and here's what it reads. He was the greatest leader of all people of all times. He was the Lord of the new humanity. He was the Savior of the world. Now, call me crazy, but I don't worship dead guys. I don't worship dead guys. And the bottom line is this. There is no religion that stands or falls on the identity of its founder like Christianity. If they find the bones of Moses... Does that destroy uh, uh, the Jewish faith? No. If, if knowing where the bones of Joseph Smith are, does that destroy or, dis, or, or absolutely wreck Mormonism? No. Does visiting the tomb of Muhammad destroy Islam? No. But if they can ever find a tomb and prove that the bones inside are a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus, Christianity completely falls apart. Here's the truth. He's either the Son of God or we are wasting our time. But I believe that Jesus Christ is the very best that God had to offer. There are some things about our faith that make it absolutely unique. Number one is the identity of our founder. Number two is the necessity of his death. If this religion is okay and that religion is okay, if this road leads to heaven and that road leads to heaven, then why in the world did Jesus have to die? Why? Why would God allow the cross if it weren't absolutely necessary? Now remember, the aim of religion is to, is to regain access to God which has been broken by sin. But the problem with all other roads is that the bridges over the gulf of sin that they build are not trustworthy. Because every other faith system out there puts forth a system where you build the bridge. But the Bible declares that there is no bridge that we could build on our own that's big enough to reach the holiness and the glory of God. That's part of the problem. We don't, we don't understand how holy God is. And you are probably going to build a whole lot better bridge than I am, but none of us can build the bridge that reaches the glory of God. The only bridge that can cross the gulf of sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. And on that cross, Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It is finished. The bridge is built. And no other religious leader, not Buddha, not Muhammad, none of them ever claimed to be qualified to offer himself for someone else's sin. 
And that is why this ridiculous nonsense that we're all on the same road is an absolute rejection of the biblical witness. Because what Jesus did on the cross to make us friends again with God is what keeps Christianity from being reconciled to any other religion out there. Newsweek ran an article, oh, years ago now. And on the cover was a picture of Jesus. And it was supposedly a look at Jesus through the eyes of other religions. And Kenneth Woodward was the author, and here's what he said. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less like a criminal like Jesus did. In Islam, the story of the death of Jesus is rejected completely as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can only accept a Jesus who passes into peaceful Samara, a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. The figure of a crucified Christ, says a Buddhist monk whose name I cannot pronounce, is very painful to me. It does not contain joy or peace. It does not do justice to Jesus. So here's his conclusion. There is, in short, no room in other religions for a Christ who experiences the full burden of moral existence, and hence there is no reason to believe in him as the divine son whom the Father resurrects from the dead. Even so, there are lessons all believers can savor by observing Jesus in the eyes of Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. The image of a benign Jesus has universal appeal, and that should come as no surprise, that most of the world cannot accept the Jesus of the cross should not surprise us either. Thus, the idea that Jesus could serve as a bridge uniting the world's religion is inviting, but maybe ultimately impossible. And I said, there better be no maybe in that at all. It has to be absolutely impossible. Because you cannot have a Christianity reconciled to other religions and keep the cross at the center of the gospel. Jesus did not claim to know a way. He didn't claim to show a way. He claimed to be the way. The road back to God is paved with his blood. There are some things about our faith. The identity of our founder, the necessity of his death, and oh, maybe my favorite... The superiority, number three, of his access. The superiority of his access. The early evangelists said in Jesus' name that connection could be made again to God. They preached that Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was qualified like no other to bring God and man together. That's what, that's what Hebrews is really all about, isn't it? In chapter 10, verse 19, I'll, I'll read it for you. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need to teach and to preach what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a tag we throw on at the end. It's not just saying, okay, we can eat now. No, it's an acknowledgement that anyone who believes his claims and is covered by his blood has unhindered access into the very presence of God. And if it took the death of God's Son to open that road, then how can we believe that every other road winds up in the same place? No. 
This is why we preach. This is why we tell people of his name. Why don't we just leave people alone? Whatever. Why not? Because his name won't allow it. His name won't allow it. If we know someone is heading down a road that's going to end up in a wrong place, it's not intolerant to give them directions. And I need you to know this. Jesus wasn't born to inspire. He came to earth to make a way for us to get to heaven. The evangelist Starnes was preaching in Philadelphia, and at the close of his meeting, a fellow came up to him and said, I don't like how you spoke about the cross. I, want, I wish you would just emphasize Jesus the teacher and Jesus the example. And the evangelist said, okay, let's say that I present him that way. Would you, would you follow him if I presented him that way? He said, absolutely. He said, okay, then let's take the first step. Jesus never sinned. Can you follow that? Well, well, I can't say that I will never sin. The preacher said, then you don't need an example, you need a savior. There is only one name that is able to save anyone. And it's not intolerant. That name is open to all. The bridge Jesus built excludes no one. The great missionary E. Stanley Jones was asked by a man in India a very, very good question. The man in India said this, What does Christianity have to offer my people that any other religion does not? That is a great question. And he got a great answer. Two words. Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity has to offer that nobody else does. Who do men say that I am? There is no more important question than that. And I don't know about you, I have a guess, but I don't know about you sitting here today, but I've made up my mind. And I would like, if you don't mind throwing that on the screen for me, Will, I, 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 I think we should sing our answer. It's a song we know well. Now, understand, I'm, I'm a preacher, not a song leader, but I'll do the best I can. And we'll sing our answer together. What do you think? Can we do that? Jesus is Lord, my Redeemer, how he loves me, how I love him, he is Yeah. 
some things about our faith, the identity of our founder, the superiority of his access, and the necessity of his death. And you can't be a Christian and be unsure about Christ. What is truth? What is truth? It's a person, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I want to pray for you, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, so many great people that I've got to meet tonight, people that love you and that love your son. And Father, I pray for this world that we live in, that your son and your truth will win. We know that it ultimately wins in the end as you come and take us to be with you. We want it to win battles every single day around us as we try to tell others about the goodness of your son. Help us, God. Help us to be about your business. Help us to boldly proclaim your son by the way we talk and live and work and play and do everything that we do. And God, most of all, help us to point other people to your son, Jesus. It is a lost world all around us. And God, we just beg you for a favor. We beg your grace uh, to be given to others the same way that you gave it to us. Uh, We ask you to walk with us as we leave this place tonight. May you be glorified in all that's done. And may you just bless this church again and again. Thank you for uh, the, the, the bright shining light that shines forth from this Hoover Church of Christ. And I ask again your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>